0: But the point that Jesus lifts up that is significant for us is that heaven, that be, being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven doesn't have to be merely a future hope, that it is a present reality. Uh, if you are in Christ, yeah. if, if you have accepted Jesus as your personal savior, then heaven is not merely the abode of the dead, the abode of those who uh, go into the afterlife. Uh, Heaven is a present reality. You are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven right now. If you are in Christ, That's, that's the key. And that's the point that he wants to make. So, for you to understand what I just said, that you are currently If you have accepted Christ as your Savior, you are currently a member of the kingdom of heaven, you ought to ask a question. And that question ought to be, what is the kingdom of heaven? So I'm going to assume that you ask that question, and I'm going to answer it. The kingdom of heaven is the sovereign rule of God in the hearts of his people. It is the sovereign rule of God in the hearts of his people. Sovereign, meaning God can do whatever God chooses to do. It means that God does not rule us because we, uh, because he forces himself on us, but because we invite him in it is the sovereign rule of god rule means he's in charge he's the boss we don't get to uh, have a say in how god rules us or in what god leads us to do the only thing you can say to god that's right is yes now you you are given the option to say no but saying no is the wrong answer whenever god calls us to something whatever god calls us to do the only correct answer is yes so it is the sovereign rule of god in the hearts of his people, which means that the kingdom has to do with heart residence. It doesn't have anything to do with geographical residence. It has to do with heart residence, and that's a good thing, because if it was just based on geography, we might find ourselves in the wrong place. Have you ever been in the wrong place? Have you ever thought that you were in the right place only to find out that you were in the wrong place? Do you remember what it was like before you had GPS? And and you either had to have a map in the glove compartment of your car or you had to listen very carefully to the directions that somebody gave you and hope that what they gave you was right. It's not about where we are geographically. It's about where we are spiritually. So, the kingdom of heaven is the sovereign rule of God in the hearts of his people. This means that the kingdom is not a political reality. It is not a material reality. It is a spiritual reality. And because it is a spiritual reality, it is only available to those who accept Jesus as both their Savior and their Lord. Now, I know that for some people this is going to be review. Forgive me for being redundant, but as I said earlier today, sometimes you have to be redundant in order for people to hear it. Do you know that you can say the same thing ten times and people only heard it the first time? Or, or the 10th time that you said that's what I meant to say, the 10th time that you said it, that, that, that you will have said something and said something and said something, and then they come and say, you never said that. Before. No, I, I said it. You just weren't listening. You, you, you didn't hear it. So, so, so forgive me if I'm being redundant with what I'm about to say. There is a huge difference between Jesus as your Savior and Jesus as your Lord. We think that they are the same, but they are not. Jesus is our savior because of the atoning work that he accomplished on Calvary, which culminated in his resurrection on that Sunday morning. You you, you can't say that he's your savior because he died. He's your savior because he died and then rose on the third day. That's what makes him your Savior. Lordship, however, only happens when we surrender our will and our way over to him. Now, are are you suggesting, Pastor, that we can accept Jesus as Savior and not accept him as Lord? Absolutely. And we do it all the time. We, We love to claim that he rose again early on a Sunday morning. But we forget the fact that the same one who would rise early on a Sunday morning said, in that day many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord. And I will say, away from me, for I knew you not. Jesus does not become our Lord until we submit ourselves To his authority. Kingdom citizenship only comes one way. We have to submit to his authority. So it is not enough to accept the saving work of Christ. We have to also accept the lordship of Christ. In theological terms, when when I was in seminary, this is the way it was broken down. We talked about the person and the work of Christ. And and, and 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 those were two different things. The work of Christ had to do with what we just described, his atoning work, his death on the cross, his resurrection on Sunday morning. That was atoning, that uh, forgave us of our sin, that estranged us from our sin, and that brought us into the presence where God can now accept us because God no longer sees us as us. He sees us through the filter of Jesus Christ and the blood that was shed On our behalf. Do you you follow that? That's the work of Christ. But the person of Christ. Is what makes the work of Christ possible. And relevant. And meaningful. If Jesus wasn't who he said he was. Then his death doesn't mean anything. At all. It is only as we embrace him. As the son of God. That's his personhood. Who do people say that I am, he asks. And they tell him, Jeremiah or or Isaiah or one of the prophets. And then he says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It is in his person that the work becomes relevant. A whole lot of good people died. Moses was a good fellow after a fashion he died. David was a good king after a fashion, but he died. You can go down the list of good folk who died. We ain't saved because good folk died. We aren't even saved because good folk died and rose again. We're saved because we submit ourselves to the lordship of the one that God sent who died in our place and rose on that Sunday morning. It's in his personhood that we find our salvation and we find kingdom citizenship. This is important. I haven't gotten to the, to, 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 to the parable yet, but this is important because this takes away from the notion that all roads lead to heaven. There are some people who believe it doesn't matter what road you go down. If, you, if you're a good person, if you believe that there is a God, and if you try to live according to God's desires as you best understand it, then then there are some people who believe that that saves you. Some people believe that Jewish people can be saved if they're good people, or that Hindu people can be saved if they're good people, or that Buddhists can be saved if they're good people. That is not what the Bible says because we are not saved because we are good people. We are saved by way of Jesus Christ. So all roads do not lead to heaven. In fact, Jesus makes a point of this. He says that there are many roads. And he, and he describes them this way. He says wide is the road and broad is the gate that leads to hell and damnation. But heaven, he says, narrow is the road and small is the gate that leads to heaven. And then he has this, few are those who find it. And you're gonna say, why is it few? It ain't few because he ain't got room. Ain't that what we sing? Plenty good room. Plenty good room. Plenty good room in my father's kingdom. And it ain't because there ain't room. It's because you don't really want to go there. What do you mean I don't want to go? Well, let's see. If he's Lord, that means that what he says goes. That means he's boss. So, If the boss says, love your enemies and bless the, yeah, I'm back on them verses again. I know somebody sitting there saying, why you got to bring up them doggone verses again? You ain't saying doggone in your mind, but we gonna clean it up for for, 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 for this Bible. Why is he back on those verses? Because it's what he said. Love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them that use you and persecute you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone compels you to walk one mile, walk two. If someone sues you for your coat, give him your cloak as well. If you would be the greatest in the kingdom, you must make yourself the servant of all. The Son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to offer his life as a ransom for many. Now that's what the boss says. That's what the Lord says. Y'all got them red letter editions, right? When you look it up, You will find everything I just said in red. That means that Jesus said it. And if Jesus said it and he's the Lord and you don't do it, then you're not embracing the Lordship of Christ. And you don't get to make excuses. Well, Lord, what had happened was you don't get to do that. Well, Lord, you really don't understand. You're going to tell the Lord? You're you going to pull a Peter? And you're going to tell the Lord what he doesn't understand? If he's the Lord, and you're his disciple, then the only way that, 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 that you can express his lordship in your life is to do what he said, to think as he said, to act as he said, to speak as he said. To fail to do that is to negate the lordship of Christ. Now, I'm not pretending that everybody is perfect all the time, God knows I'm not. There are plenty of mistakes that I make and I'm sure that that's true for everybody in here. But I'm not talking about occasional mistakes, I'm talking about a pattern of behavior. I'm talking about folk who have decided, I've been this way, I am this way, I'm going to be this way. I ain't changing for nobody. This is between me and the Lord. You ain't got nothing to do with you. Well, you're right, I ain't got nothing, because I ain't got a heaven to put you in or a hell to send you to. But I can tell you this, you keep that attitude, I know where you're going. I I ain't got no question about where you're going because even though you say with your mind even though you have made a profession of faith that profession is not backed up with lifestyle anybody can say something with their minds it takes something else to live it with your life it takes something else to think it with your mind and to have a different posture of heart. I, I have to say this, nobody is saved on the basis of their work, but their work is a reflection of their salvation. So, so, so even though you, you, you try to get away from it, you can't get away from it. It's extremely important that you understand. Jesus wants us to understand that the kingdom of heaven is not some place you go just when you die. You can be a part of the kingdom. You ought to be a part of the kingdom right now. And the only thing that keeps you from doing it is you. So let's look at Luke chapter 14. Verses 15 through 24. There is a background that leads us into this. Jesus is having a Sabbath meal uh, with one of the leaders of the Pharisees and While he was there, he got into various discussions about whether or not it was right or wrong to heal on the Sabbath day. Look at chapter 14, beginning with verse one. One time when Jesus went for a Sabbath meal with one of the top leaders of the Pharisees, all the guests had their eyes on him, watching his every move. Right before him, there was a man hugely swollen in his joints. So Jesus asked the religion scholars and Pharisees present, is it permitted to heal? On the Sabbath, yes or no. They were silent. So he took the man, healed him, and sent him on his way. Then he said, is there anyone here who, if a child or animal fell down a well, wouldn't rush to pull him out immediately, not asking whether or not it was the Sabbath? They were stumped. There was nothing they could say to that. He went on to tell a story to the guests around the table, noticing how each had tried to elbow into the place of honor. He said, when someone invites you to dinner, don't take the place of honor. Somebody more important than you might have been invited by the host. Then he'll come and call out in front of everybody, you're in the wrong place. The place of honor belongs to this man. Red-faced, you'll have to make your way to the very last table, the only place left. All right, so he's at the house of a Pharisee. Now, just let me say this parenthetically. This isn't really a part of what I'm talking about, but but it struck me as I was reading it. Uh, He's at the house of a Pharisee as a guest at dinner. Why? That's the question that strikes me. Why is he at the house of a Pharisee having dinner? Clearly he was invited to come to the house of this Pharisee to have dinner. Again, my question is, why? Pharisees didn't like Jesus. Pharisees told people that Jesus was a fanatic, that Jesus was illegitimate, that Jesus was a pretender, that he was a false, prophet and yet the pharisee according to the text one of the top pharisees invited him to dinner and put him in the place of honor at the table my question is why the answer is not because they wanted to learn from jesus The answer is not because they had had a change of heart about Jesus. The whole point is to bring him close enough so that they could watch him and then ultimately destroy him. I tell people all the time, my favorite movies are the Godfather movies. Now now you got yours, I got mine. My favorite movies, other Godfather movies. You don't. You ain't like what I'm about to say, but it's the truth. There's a whole lot of theology in the Godfather, and, 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 and one is that right there. Keep your friends close. Keep your enemies closer. They did not invite Jesus to dinner because they were in love with Jesus. In fact, they invited Jesus to dinner because they hated Jesus and they wanted to observe Jesus and they were looking for an opportunity to expose Jesus as the fraud that they thought he was. Here's my point to you. Don't think that everybody who's nice to you cares about you. Don't think that everybody who smiles in your face and gives you a hug and gives you a kiss really cares about you. When I was a a, a boy growing up in this church, uh, one one of the members of this church who you would know if I called her name, and I ain't gonna do it, uh, uh, kissed another member uh, on the cheek going into the choir room as they were getting ready for service, they only had one service at that time, that was at 11 o'clock. And the person who received the kiss said loud enough for me to hear, because I was ushering right there at that door, said it loud enough for me to hear. Ooh, now I know how Judas felt. They were making a point. Not everybody who kisses you loves you. Not everybody who hugs you loves you. Not everybody who wants to talk to you. Not everybody who shakes your hand loves you. You have to have a discerning spirit. You have to be very careful about who you invite into your circle. The Pharisees wanted Jesus at the table because they wanted to watch him. Now, the flip side of that is, why did Jesus go? Because Jesus said, I ain't got nothing to worry about. I know who I am, I know whose I am, I know why I'm here, and I know that there ain't nothing you can do to me. So for Jesus, well, okay, they got ribs and chicken, I'm gonna be fine. <laughs> did, did, didn't bother him at all. But, but, but they invited him to the dinner because they wanted to observe him, because they wanted to find a weakness in him that they could exploit. As he was there, it says that he comes across this fellow who has swollen joints. Literally, he had what is called the dropsy. Anybody remember, nobody nobody uses the term dropsy anymore, but but he had the dropsy, and, and the dropsy is an abnormal buildup of serous fluid between the tissue cells, the formal term for it is edema y'all, y'all heard of edema but if, if you're of a certain age or if you were raised by people of a certain age they ain't call it no edema they called it the dropsy my, my grandmother told me that her daddy died from the dropsy this man was in a serious uh, condition he was painful he, he, he was in a great deal of pain and Jesus presents him to the crowd and says now you tell me Pharisees, leaders of the people, you tell me, is it wrong to heal on the Sabbath day? And I like the way Peterson puts it. He says, is it permitted to heal on the Sabbath? And then he says, yes or no. Don't give me no roundabout answer. Yes or no. Is it wrong to heal on the Sabbath? And they took what many people take. The cowardly way out. They ain't say a word. They just looked. Somebody probably folded their arms. And put a scowl. On their face. Jesus heals the man. And, 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 and then. He, he, he puts them to shame. By saying. If one of your children or even if one of your livestock fell into a well, you would rush to get the child or the livestock out of the well and you wouldn't even care that it was the Sabbath. Now, what he's saying is pulling people out of wells, the, the, the work that he's describing was considered to be work and no work was to be done on the Sabbath. That, that was the argument that they had against the healing. they they would say, oh certainly we're not against healing. It's just that the scripture says that there should be no work on the Sabbath. And we have determined, we have determined, not God has determined, we have determined that healing is work. And so Jesus says your child, and and of course everybody would agree, I'll get the child. But then he says your livestock. Now I know how some of y'all feel about your dogs and your cats and your turtles. But that's not what Jesus is talking about when he talks about cattle that falls into a well. The cattle represents money. The cattle was tied to their economy. And so Jesus moves it from a child, which of course everybody, well yes, I'd save the child. Well, would you save your money? Now, to, to, to pull a cow out of a well is considered work. Are you willing to lose the value of a live cow just so that you will have kept the Sabbath? He's hitting them where, where they live. Because for some folk, their real God is money. Their real God is not Yahweh. Their real God is not the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. Their real God is money. And he asks them, what would you do if you saw money in the well? Would you stop and pull the money out of the well? So you'll pull money out of a well. But when I heal this person, when I stop his illness, when I relieve him of his pain and his suffering on the Sabbath, somehow I've done something wrong because I've helped somebody, and you wouldn't be willing to do that. Well, then he—he—well, he, now he—he's picking on him, and and, and I, I tell people all the time: as you read Jesus, especially from Luke's gospel account. What you see is that the farther Jesus gets into Luke, the more critical he becomes of the Pharisees. Early on in Luke, as well as in the other gospel accounts, Jesus would say something or do something and he'd rile folk up. Next thing you know, he was gone. Say, he slipped out from among them, he moved on to another village. But the farther you go, you sit down and read Luke. The farther you go into Luke's gospel, the more audacious Jesus becomes, the more brazen Jesus becomes, the more fearless Jesus becomes. Do you know why that is? Because he's pushing them somewhere. He's pushing them to a place where ultimately they have to make a decision about how they're gonna respond to me. Ultimately, you have to decide for yourself. Nobody can make that decision for you. Jesus pushes us. I'm not saying that this is universally true, but hear me. Some of the mess that you're in is Jesus pushing you. I did all I could with my finances. I didn't throw no money away. I didn't go to the boat. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. And yet I'm still coming up short. That's Jesus pushing you. He's pushing you to make a decision. I eat right all the time. I don't eat nothing that I want to eat. I eat all that nasty stuff that ain't got no taste to it. Rice cakes and all that other mess. And yet when I go to the doctor, he says that my heart ain't getting better, it's getting worse. That's Jesus pushing you to make a decision. I try to treat everybody right. I try to be courteous towards everyone. I try to be congenial, and I try to be open, and I try to be transparent. And yet, as nice as I am to people, people are just low down and mean to me, and I don't know what to do. That's Jesus pushing you. Jesus uses our trials, our troubles, our Problems in order to push us into a direction where we will either say, I'm going to live for Christ or I'm going to do it another way. You'd be amazed at how many people are in the church but don't have the church in them. How many people have have said with their mouths, I surrender all, but in their lives they have surrendered nothing. Nothing. And so from time to time, Jesus puts us in situations where we have to decide, am I gonna trust the Lord or am I gonna do it my way? Jesus pushes the Pharisees. So, so, so after he's embarrassed them about this healing thing, now he's talking about the seating arrangements at somebody else's house. How would you feel if somebody walked in your house and told you you got all the folks seated wrong? <laughs> Jesus says, I watched y'all earlier, y'all fighting and and fussing, trying to get to the head spot. Y'all shouldn't be so quick to want to do that because you'll, you'll find yourselves embarrassed. You might find yourself in a seat that was reserved for somebody else. And it's an embarrassing thing when somebody walks up to you and says, excuse me, you're in the wrong seat. You ever been on a plane and you thought you had the right seat number? You thought you, you want to sit in the aisle and you think that's your seat and you sit down and somebody comes and stands over you and says, you in my seat. He's, he's pushing them and he's, try, he's pushing them with a purpose. He's trying to get them to understand that the kingdom is not about being in the best seat. The kingdom is about having the best posture for service. And that comes from a willingness to submit to divine Authority. So, as he leads them into this, somebody says to him, verse 15, that triggered a response from one of the guests. How fortunate the one who gets to eat dinner in God's kingdom. Jesus followed up, yes, for there was once a man who threw a great dinner party and invited many. When it was time for dinner, he sent out his servant to the invited guests, saying, come on in, the food's on the table. Then they all began to beg off, one after another, making excuses. The first said, I bought a piece of property and need to look it over, send my regrets. Another said, I just bought five teams of oxen, and I really need to check them out, send my regrets. And yet another said, I just got married and need to get home to my wife. The servant went back and told the master what had happened. He was outraged and told the servant, quickly, get out into the city streets and alleys. Collect all who look like they need a square meal. All the misfits and homeless and wretched you can lay your hands on and bring them here. The servant reported back, Master, I did what you commanded, and there's still room. The master said, then go to the country roads. Whoever you find, drag them in. I want my house full. Let me tell you, not one of those originally invited is going to get so much as a bite at my dinner party. We told you when we started this series on the parables that every part of the parable uh, means something that that Jesus sets the story up in order to make the point that he's trying to make so when he talks about a man who has a banquet who's going to have a party that's God The, the, the man who's throwing the party is God the invited guests are the Pharisees. Not the Jews, which is what some people might tell you. He's talking specifically about the Pharisees. And he's calling them the invited guests not because they are actually the invited guests, but because they thought of themselves as the invited guests. Pharisees had an exaggerated Opinion of themselves. Yes, sir. It's Luke 14 15 through 24. No, because that's too broad. It's a specific segment of Israel. He's talking about the Pharisees. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the Pharisees. He's making this point directly to and about them, because he wants them to see themselves not as they have perceived themselves to be, but as they really are. He sent out invitations to all of these people, all, all, all of these high and mighty and highfalutin folk to come to the banquet. And when it was time for them to come, They begged off. Now, I want you to hear the stupidity of the excuses as to why they won't come. One says, I bought a field, and I need to go survey it. Okay, let let me ask you, you land-owning tycoons here because I know some of y'all got property. Which one of y'all buys a piece of land? Sight unseen. Help me with that. Which one of y'all buys, after the floods of 2016, y'all wanna walk the land? You wanna go down and see if it's in a flood plain? You, you, you want to know everything there is to know about the land before you lay your money down. He says, I bought a field, but I didn't bother to go look at it before I bought it. So, so I can't come to the banquet because I need to go look at the field. Next one comes along and says, I bought five teams. That's five yoke. That's ten oxen. I have bought 10 oxen, and I need to go inspect what I bought. Okay, let me ask you again. Which one of y'all would buy one ox, let alone 10, sight unseen? Help me with that. The main purpose of, of oxen was, was to serve as the driving force to plow fields. And, and, and so you he, he needed to be sure that the oxen were strong enough in order to deal with the fields that you were dealing with, that they were strong enough to pull the plow. You would think you would want to know that before you put down your money to buy it. So, so, the first one says, I bought a field sight unseen. The second one says, I bought ten oxen sight unseen. The third one says, I just got married. And I need to go home to my wife. Now, I can put a couple of spins on that one. I'll settle with this spin. Do you remember when somebody said to Jesus, Lord, I want to follow you, but first let me go home and and, and tell my family goodbye? And Jesus' response was, no one who puts his hand to the plow and then looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Do you remember an incident where Jesus was teaching and the scripture says his mother and his siblings came to him and and somebody came up to Jesus in the middle of his sermon and said, excuse me, rabbi, but your mama and your brother and your sisters are out here and they, they wanna see you. And Jesus's response was terse. It was quick. Who is my mother? Who are my brothers and my sisters? Those who do the will of my father. Jesus is saying you can't put anything or anyone ahead of me. Now, I'm looking at some of your faces as I say that. Because I know that for some of you, that, 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 that's hard for you to accept. Well, didn't he give me my family? Didn't he give me my spouse? Didn't he give me my children and and he expects me to neglect them in order to follow him? Short answer is, yep, he does. He expects you to follow him and trust that he will take care of everything else. Seek first the kingdom of heaven and its righteousness and all. Read read it. Read it in the King James Version. Read it in the NIV. Some of y'all don't like the the, the Message Version. Read read it in the NIV. Read it in the New American Standard. Read it in the Revised Standard. Read it in the New International Readers Version. In whatever version you read, it's going to say, if you seek first the kingdom, all other things, will be added to you. So it's a matter of priority. Jesus sets the story where God has invited these Pharisees to come and sit at his table. Sitting at the table means being obedient to his word, not changing his word, but being obedient to his word. Go back and look at the Sermon on the Mount. In six places, Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say. And before he gets into that, he says, I have not come to abolish the law. I've come to see to it that the law is rightfully fulfilled. And his point is this, others have taken my father's law and twisted it until it is no longer recognizable to what God originally said. And so he says, God has set the table of salvation, set the table of the kingdom, and he has invited you fine, high, and mighty, fundamentalist Pharisees to come to the table and one by one, each one of you has begged off. What does begging off mean? Begging off means I'm not willing to come your way. I'm willing to come my way. When I was a, a boy, uh, Burger King had this phrase, have it your way. Hold the pickle, hold the lettuce, Special orders don't upset us. All we ask is that you let us have it your way. They're laughing over here that I remember all the words to, to these commercials. But you can look at me and you can tell I know something about whoppers and hamburgers. But, 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 but their thing was, have it your way. And, and, and they highlighted that because many of the other... Fast food places at that time didn't change. It was what they offered. McDonald's didn't change. You couldn't tell them, take the, no, it's already been made. You just got to take what we give you. And so Burger King made a thing about you can have it your way, and it caught on. And so all the other restaurants now, you you can change it any kind of way you want to. Now, and a lot of us think it's that way with God. That that we can embrace the compassion of God and the forgiveness of God for us, but we don't have to forgive anybody else. Well, I invite you to reread that model prayer. Jesus doesn't just say forgive us our debts. He says forgive us our debts as we have already forgiven our debtors. You can't have it your way. The kingdom of heaven ain't Burger King. You have to come his way. So when, when they beg off one after another, and he only, gives, he only cites three examples, but his point is clear. They didn't want to come if they had to come the master's way. We'll wait. We'll pass it up. It's not that big a deal. So when, 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 when the master comes and he says, it's time for the banquet, and he sends the servants out to tell him, come on to the table, it's time to come. he say, ain't nobody coming. What you mean ain't nobody coming? Well, we send out the invitations like you said, but they've all given us reasons why they're not coming. You don't have a single person at the table. Now, if some of y'all were throwing a party and nobody came, y'all might break down and cry. All this money I spent trying to have this party and ain't nobody come boo hoo, gloom, despair, and agony on me. Do you know what the, the owner of the, the house said? He essentially said forget about all them folk. He said you go out and you find Others, anybody who looks like they need a meal. I, 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 I want you to see what he says. He says, Collect the misfits and the homeless and all the wretched you can lay your hands on and bring them to me. Now, What's important here is where he told them to go. He said, go into the city streets and alleys." Okay, now, Terry, you get to Israel. You get to the rest of Israel. Pharisees represented a certain section of Israel that thought they were better than everybody else. When the master says, go to the city streets and alleys, he's talking about go to the rest of the house of Israel. Go to the folk that the Sadiddy folk said shouldn't be at the table in the first place. Go get them and bring them in and sit them at the table. And they went and they brought them in. They brought in folks who had leprosy. They brought in folks who had dropsy. They brought in folk who were blind. They brought in folk who were lame. They brought in folk who hadn't had a meal and hadn't had a bath in a long time. You know, smelly folk brought them all in. But they were all in the city streets and the alleys, which meant that they were all from the house of Israel. They were all good children of Abraham. They just weren't as good as the high and mighty Pharisees. Because these are people, you see, when you had an illness or when you had an infirmity, it was more than just a physical malady. It was perceived by religious orthodoxy as being a condemnation from God. Nobody gets the point about the woman with the issue of blood when when, when, when she makes her way through the crowd. We, we, we talk about her weaving her way through the crowd and I've seen preachers get down on their hands and knees and crawl around like crazy folk. That, that, that's missing the point. The point is by stepping out into the crowd she was taking her life yeah. into her hands. The law said that for as long as you were bleeding You were unclean. And and, and you could not be in the presence of other people for 14 days. You had to have been cleansed of your bleeding for 14 days. This woman has been bleeding for 12 years. And it has not stopped. But when she heard Jesus was passing by. She said, that's my last shot. I've gone to doctors. Doctors couldn't help me. Friends have stopped coming to me because I keep on bleeding, and they don't want to be caught up in my mess. Be careful, of folk, who love you as long as everybody else loves you. But drop you the moment that somebody gets mad with you. There are some folk who, 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 can, who, who, who can stay with you when... Everything is going well. But they leave you when things are in trouble. Family members do not stop coming by. Nobody makes a phone call. Nobody makes a text. Nobody sends me an email. I have been forgotten. I am outside. This is my last shot. And if I go out there, I know what I'm risking. I've been bleeding. I'm bleeding right now. If I am seen by someone in my bleeding state, they would have the right, the authority, to pick up a stone and take my life. But this is, he is my last chance. And I'm gonna get to him or die trying. That's what I want you to see. This is what she, 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 she had to put herself through. And, and so she does weave her way through the crowd and touch the hem of his garment, but in her weaving, every time she touched somebody, they had the right to kill her. Because when you suffered a malady, when you had an infirmity, when you had a physical affliction, it was more than just a physical affliction. It was a judgment from God in the eyes of the high and mighty religious orthodoxy. So the master says, go out into the city streets, and the alleys and bring everybody who looks like they ain't had nothing to eat, bring them and sit them at my table. So they do as he says, they go out into the city streets and they bring them in. Now the Pharisees feel bad enough now, listening to this story, they feel bad enough because they know what Jesus is talking about. And what they're saying is, there are some folk that we have said ain't gonna be there, that are gonna be there. Be careful about who you say ain't gonna be in heaven. Can I tell you, it ain't your heaven. You ain't got no heaven. So, 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 so be careful about who you say ain't going to make it in. He, he, he's already irritated them by saying, I'm going to have folks sitting at the table who you have decided can't be there. But, 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 but then he keeps on. He, he adds to the story. He says, when the servants came back, they said, well, we, we went and did as you said. And we found all those folks and we brought them to the table. But there is still room. And then the master says, go out again. This time, don't just stop in the city streets and the alleys. He says, go to the country roads whoever you find. And and, and I want you to see how Peterson puts it. He doesn't say invite them to come. He says drag them. Now if you drag me somewhere, the suggestion is I didn't want to come. He says you go back out and you find them and they might not even want to come but you drag them anyway and you put them at my table now that's not just the house of israel now he's talking about samaritans he's talking about gentiles he's talking about all non-jewish folk now you ought to be glad about that because i don't think anybody in here has the name goldberg I don't think anybody in here has the name Sternberg. Wasn't that the name of the guy who owned God Charles? Sternberg? Nobody in here has that name. So, So when he says, go out into the country and whoever you find, drag them in. That's talking about you and me because if the Pharisees didn't want the infirmed Jews at the table, they really didn't want you at the table. They really didn't want me at the table. Oh God, are you you really gonna let me say this? There are still some churches that don't want you at the table. Some of them have names like Bethany and Healing Place and Hosanna they, they don't want, they want your money. They don't want you. And if that makes you mad, be mad. But think about it. They don't want you. They, they, they don't want you at the table. You die and they go get somebody to bury you because they ain't going to do it. You get sick, they send somebody because they ain't coming. They don't want you at the table. That ain't just true in biblical times. That's true right now. And here's the thing. I don't want to be at their table no how. Because their table ain't the real table. Their table is a fake table. Their table is a false table. I don't want to be at the wrong table. I want to be at the table that the Lord wants me to be at. Go out into the country roads. Go out and find whoever you can find. And drag them, compel them, force them to come back and sit at my table. Then he adds one final thing, and we're going to sing just as I am. He says, I want my house full. Let me tell you, not one of those originally invited is going to get so much as a bite at my dinner party. Now, is that because Jesus is mean? Is that because Jesus is vengeful? Is that because Jesus holds a grudge? I I know that's what we do in his name. We're mean in his name, and we're vengeful in his name, and, and, and we act like our vengeance is his vengeance. Seems to me I read somewhere, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, and unless your name is Lord, He ain't talking to you. So when Jesus says this, he's not being mean. He's not being vengeful. He's he's saying that you will not get a bite because you will not submit to my lordship. What he's really saying is the reason why you ain't getting a bite is not because of me. It's because of you. It's because you have chosen to absent yourself from the table. Three minutes. Ain't going to take that long. If you end up in hell, pat yourself on the back and say, job well done. Because while you don't have to work to get into heaven, you have to work to go to hell. You have to reject Jesus' love and Jesus' compassion and Jesus' forgiveness. You have to ignore everything that Jesus says about how we are to think and how we are to live. And you have to decide against every call contrary that I'm going to do it my way regardless. So if you end up in heaven, in hell, and if it gets hot, Pat yourself on the back. Reach back as far as you can. I did a good job. Because that's the only way you're going to get there. Heaven is free. Hell you got to work toward. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood will shed for me. That thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. If there's one, we invite you to come. just as i am without one plea but that thy blood was shed for me and that thou biddest me come Repeat after me, please. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen. Y'all have a good evening.